0: Normally, this is the part where I talk about behind-the-scenes stuff, but honestly, there's actually not a lot to talk about this week. I mean, don't mistake me, there's a lot of little details and a lot of subtle touches, and I'll mention a couple of behind-the-scenes things as we go. But for the most part, I just want to dive right into this one. I love this bit. Cisco's like, everyone thought the war was over when we retook T-Space. Really? Really, everyone, everyone thought that. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just amused at that very concept. This is especially funny since, if you remember, when they were originally pitching the Dominion War to Rick Berman, he was like, well, it can only last four episodes. A war. A war can only last four episodes. I remind you, the war, if we count the official kickoff as the end of Season 5, lasts two full seasons. And even that's kind of underselling it, if we're being honest with ourselves. Anyways. So Joseph Sisko actually visits. And can I just say it really is a treat to see Brock Peters again? He he's always nailed the overall tone of Joseph Sisko, and he does a very good job of it. And I I have nothing else to add to that. I just wanted to give the praise that I feel he is due for the role. Because there's an almost understated current to his performance here of the war's going badly, things are going badly in general. His son needs him. Remember This is his first time leaving Earth. Ever. And he decides to do this, to go visit his son and grandson, just to be there for them. Because of of how bad things are. Excuse me. I, I, I have no shame in admitting this episode hit me pretty hard. What is it with Deep Space Nine and making me feel? God, what the hell? I'm here to watch Star Trek, not feel things, right? Uh, Cisco Sisko also has this great speech where he's talking about giving up, basically. Because the situation is hopeless and he's facing an implacable enemy that, as of this moment in time, at least to his acknowledgement, he has no hope of winning. Not really. Uh, they kind of already covered that back in Statistical Probabilities, which I'm pretty sure is before this. And, well, I'll discuss this actual topic a little bit more in a minute. But think about it. Think about how horrible being in his position really is. One of the things that really caught my attention is the fact that he sounds a lot like Christopher Pike. I'm tired of deciding who lives and who dies. That is a horrible burden to place on a person. It is unfortunate that that kind of burden must go to someone, in my opinion at least, who acknowledges it as a burden. A Cisco, rather than a Justice Lord. And I keep bringing that thread up because... We're almost there, to the point where that that theme came a thing. Anyways, it's an interesting thing, by the way. Uh, At the beginning, Cisco starts to more or less literally have visions. And I'm going to go and posit this as if this entire thing is a vision, because I don't think this one's up to interpretation at this point. Now that we've seen the whole show and we've talked to the behind the scenes, we know what the intent was originally, we know what the intent was changed to, uh, it is canon that this is a vision from the Prophets. Okay? Makes sense. They even mentioned that it's the same type of thing that he was getting last time he was getting visions from the Prophets. It also is interesting because it's very similar to what Pa Ducat was getting from, you know his particular delusions and hallucinations not exactly identical because those were clearly internecine and that's the way i want that's the reason i wanted to bring up that contrast as much as i don't like the ducat v cisco thing that i talked about back in waltz i do have to admit that this is a nice highlight of the difference between the two men ducat has internal demons cisco has external ones but cisco's help to encourage him and ducats only bring him down which if we're to break that down to its most simplistic sentence is ducat is his own worst enemy and cisco is bolstered by others which means yes yet again we have a my friends are my power kind of a theme not that i mind that i've always liked that theme especially when it's done properly the concept and thematic significance of cooperation coordination and teamwork being able to overcome greater odds is something i legitimately believe in in real life so i'm totally down with this concept when it comes to fiction, at least as if it's well done, which this episode certainly does. Now, I want to... So I'm I'm basically done talking about the easy part of the episode to talk about. Um, My notes are all over the place this week, guys. I'm going to try to go through this in something that approximates order. those of you who are on my Discord may be surprised that I'm even going to talk about this at all. (laughs) So we go in the past, 1953. Not the best of times. And we go to the publishing office. I forget what's it, Incredible Tales or something like that. Now, what's funny is they quickly establish the allegories for who is whom in the office. It's pretty easy to deduce who each of them are if you're you know, even remotely familiar with that era of science fiction in general, because O'Brien is obvious. He's playing Asimov, Isaac Asimov. I mean, they give that one away almost completely, especially since he gets his robot story published at the end. We have Harlan Ellison as Quark, or Quark as Harlan Ellison, but Armin Shimmerman as Harlan Ellison. That Now, that's going to sound strange, because that probably sounds a little bit like an insult, but I don't mean it like that. But historically speaking, Harlan Ellison has always been very much a hardliner, very much a, you know, don't give an inch kind of a personality and perspective. And, uh, well, there are other inferences as well, which brings me, of course, to the next one, which is, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing these names right, Catherine Moore and Henry Cutner, a.k.a. Kira and Bashir. Funny little side note, they have Nana Visitor and Alexander Siddig as a married couple in this episode. Just cute. And, of course, this one was the most difficult one, but based on what happens later, I think I can safely say that Odo, that is to say Rene Bergenois, is playing Joseph Campbell. Uh, now, funnily enough, I actually really did my research on this particular point, and it turns out I am not the only one who has come to these same conclusions, which I found out after I had came to these conclusions. So I'm going to go ahead and say that's probably very de- uh, in-, in deliberate, The writers of this episode and the writers of Deep Space Nine are long-standing science fiction fans. And they're also science fiction writers. Yeah, there's a pretty good chance that all of this was very deliberately called out. Which makes sense, because if you pay attention to every name I just mentioned, every one of them was one of the science fiction writers who was trying to push cultural envelopes, societal envelopes, in their own ways, of course. But each of them was someone who could be argued to be, for lack of a better way to put it, ahead of their time and trying to be part of, uh, God, what do I call it, a movement? No, no, I I know what I want to call that, and I'm just going to say it what it is, trying to be part of being human, actually human, and not part of some, well, like the cops in this episode. I suppose the first thing I should really talk about, looking at my notes, I actually have numbers just all over the place here. Uh, first thing I should talk about is the... Uh, it's nice to see everyone out of makeup. I stand by my statement that Renee bergen looked like that back in when he was made human. I mean, he's got a good look. I mean, the man certainly, he looks good, especially for the time. And I think that they could have done a good thing with that, but that's neither here nor there. I, I want you to pay attention... If you're watching this episode or have recently rewatched this episode, I want you to pay attention to Benny's voice acting. Um, this is a good time to mention that Avery Brooks directed this episode. He actually wasn't supposed to. It wasn't his turn. I've talked before about this idea. Basically, there's a a roster, a list, and you direct this episode, and you direct this episode, you direct this episode, and it's not really site-specific. It's not like, I really want Bob to direct this episode. It's just, you direct the next episode in the list. And with very few exceptions, they adhere to this list. This has been true in TNG. This is true in Voyager. This is just how they did this. Um, and this is also how fa- uh, cast members would get cycled in to have their chance of directing, to be, in, to get directing credit and to get hands-on experience with directing. Now, I mentioned that though because they looked at this and said it, it's gotta be Brooks. We've gotta bring Brooks in for this one. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, they could have brought Dorn in as well for basically the exact same reason, but they wanted Brooks to be the one to actually head, headline this one, especially since Brooks himself has proven to be a pretty good director, especially when it comes to visual photography or uh, visual composition, excuse me. So I point that out because Brooks is the main character of this episode, as both Benny and Cisco, and he is the director, which is a hell of a job, but he took to it um, very, very well, <laughs> just to put that as bluntly as I could. By all accounts, the man was outstanding, and I do think the results speak for themselves. I could probably name two minor nitpicks in the episode. I'm not even going to m- mention them because they are that insignificant. This is an extremely well-crafted episode. Uh, especially given the complexities of well I, I guess i could talk about it now so, so i said behind the scenes stuff one of the interesting things is periodically benny will flash to either being on the station you know being in the deep space 9 set, sets or seeing someone in their original costume like seeing uh willie in the in war as wharf with full klingon armor or when now this is actually a really important one. When Ducat or wait, excuse me, when the two cops are beating on him at certain points, it will flash, and they'll be Wei and or Ducat. Uh, at one point, um, uh, I can't remember the the character name. Sorry, I, uh, the Catherine Moore parallel, the one that Nana Visitor plays, she flashes, and she's sitting there as Kira Narice. Now the reason this is significant, other than the obvious symbological you know, parallels between characters. The real reason this is significant is from an out-of-character perspective, because that's hard to do. It's not like, to, to explain this, and I know this is going to sound so stupid to some of you, it's not like they can just film the scene up to point A and then have him go off and get in full makeup and costume, come back, film his scene, which, remember, each of those flashes is only a few seconds long, then have him go get out of makeup and costume, come back and film the rest of the scene. No, they usually, they would do this on separate days, which means on day one they would film, like, this chunk, and this chunk of a scene, and then on day two they'd come back, and everyone would get set up in the right position, and they'd film this one eight-second block now that they've done the makeup call and and the costume call. And so what they had to do is one day of filming all of the stuff which had no makeup whatsoever, and then one day with everyone fully in costume and fully in uniform. If that doesn't sound like a nightmare, you haven't worked in television productions. (laughs) That had to have been insane to keep track of and to make sure everything was working. I feel really bad for the continuity director, which is a real thing, by the way. Although it's not what you'd probably think. Continuity director is all about making sure people have the right equipment or in the right positions or saying the right things um, from scene to scene. It's their job to make sure that when, whenever there's an edit in the actual ep, ep, episode or show or movie, excuse me, it this edit and this edit look like they happen next to each other even though they filmed these days apart. That's a continuity director's job. Anyways... So, very good job by Brooks, like I said. And I also want to comment on... uh, So Brooks puts in this very... And I I, I stumbled for words. The word I settled on was a very restrained performance at the beginning. He sounds like he's just... God, I'm trying to... I can do this because I know what it feels like to be forcing a very calm tone. You're not actually calm. You're practically shaking because of how mad you are, or how hurt you are. But you have to stay calm, because if you don't, things will just get worse. So you have this restrained tone going. Now, Brooks does a better job than I just did it, because I'm not a good actor, but you get the idea. He, uh, he nails it. And of course, this leads immediately to, you might be thinking, why? Why does he have to be so restrained? Now, this is almost <laughs> interesting because the episode then immediately answers that question with the pigs outside. Uh, excuse me. I don't mean to be deleterious towards pigs. Pigs are fine. Pigs taste delicious. Uh, the scumbags who are outside. They're, <laughs> of course, played by Mark Alemo and Jeffrey Combs for reasons I'll get to in just a minute. But, uh, I, I don't even know what to say about that scene. That actually... I, bleh, bleh, that's what I have to say about that scene. Bleah, what in God's name? This is 1953. He says, you, watch your tone of voice there. Now, that's important. Keep, it, keep that in mind. Watch your tone of voice. Remember what I said about restrained? He's staying calm and polite and peaceful he is to put it bluntly keeping his head down and understandably so those two cops have the ability and the power to ruin his life if they feel like it that's true now that was certainly true back in 1953 so the idea of you, know, you watch your tone of voice with me and they they talk about running him in to see if he has any priors aka to see if he has any previous record to see if he is a criminal why? Well, because he's wearing a suit. What? I mean, I mean, that's just horrible. And then they decide the only reason the only reason the scumbags don't actually decide to run him in and arrest him without cause, without probable cause even, is because of the fact that they're busy. So as they're leaving, hey, you're getting off with a warning this time. That'll teach you. And the really messed up part, and the part that gets me even worse, is after Benny finally gets his drawing of Deep Space Nine, stylized. Well done, by the way. And leaves. By the way, real quick, I didn't actually mention uh, Hertzler. forgive me. He, he does a good job as the artist guy, too. Just nice little touch. Anyways, before he uh, <clears throat> he takes his drawing and he leaves, and before the two actually leave the scene... One of them says, Oh, I tell ya, this city's going to hell in a handbasket. Now, that's the line that really stuck with me. And you know why? It's one thing to show racism. Let's just call it out what it is. Uh, It's one thing to show that kind of... uh, Thinking. I'm, I'm struggling with my words. Please forgive me here. Because this... You get emotional, it's harder to think straight, right? There's this... It's one thing to try and showcase that through cartoonish actions or through uh, extenuating circumstances or through extreme reactions. But that line helps get it across better than anything else. Remember, all Benny did was walk by them in a suit. Now, that's important because... What is wrong with this city that we're letting those people walk around about in a suit, actually having a job as something other than a janitor? This city is going to hell. The fact that there is that kind of person that could legitimately think that that kind of... I, I, I'm actually struggling to explain this. It is it, that, that kind of normal, acceptable understandable. It, it's like being upset that you you poured a cup of water and the water in the cup was water and it's like, ah, this city's going to hell. It's so nonsensical to to, to think that way. God, sorry, I'm actually starting to stutter a little bit because it's so wrong. (laughs) How could you actually have that mentality? But that gets it across because rather than being cartoonish or, or whatever, it's very believable. It's very realistic. This leads me rather naturally into my next point. Um, So we go to the diner, and we see, for lack of a better way to put it, the other side of the problem. Now, uh, there's no nice way to talk about this, but the problem is that people like Benny and Willie and Jimmy are all kind of contributing to the problem. Now, please don't take that as recrimination. Please don't take that as if it's, ah, oh, it's just their fault. I think I've made it very clear who I believe's fault is at, who I believe is at fault here. But the harsh reality is that in a system of such systema- systemic oppression, what we see is that people who are oppressed will also contribute to the oppression. This is actually going to come up in a later episode. God, I'm starting to cry a little bit. This is coming up in a later episode, uh, wrongs darker than death or night, where we see the actual Bajoran collaborator, not the, not the women, the gentleman. He, that guy is part of the problem, right? Now, I'm not saying, God, I'm, people are just going to misconstrue the hell out of this episode, aren't they? No matter what I say, I lose. That's how this works. Just by bringing up this episode, I have lost. So let's just lay this out here, shall we? No, I'm not calling any of these people collaborators, okay? What I am going to say, however, is the honest truth. Benny stays quiet, keeps his head down, and doesn't try to raise a fuss. That is the decision he has made in order to try and keep his life and keep his livelihood. That is an extremely understandable position, but you can see how it contributes to the problem. Because, to be blunt, he is allowing people to walk over him. Now you might say, well, he has no power to do anything about that. And you'd be right. You see why this is so insidious? Which leads me to the next point. Uh, Willie, right? Yeah, I got it right. Really, Willie, played by Michael Dorn. Who, by the way, does an excellent job as, Michael, uh, as, as Willie here. I mention in a future episode. I'm doing these out of order. It's not obvious. I mentioned in a future episode uh, that Dorn has some good range with his acting. It's nice to see him be able to stretch out a little bit. He's also keeping his head down oh, yeah, he's got a nice job because the color barrier was finally removed when it comes to uh, the, you know baseball, Major League Baseball. But he still lives in this neighborhood. He still doesn't interact with his white comrades out, outside of work. And it's understandable why. Again, this is not a statement of blame. This is a statement of fact that he is also keeping his head down. Now, this is also important because you need to remember that both of these men, Benny and Willie, have respectable jobs. They wear a suit to work every day. They're more dressed up than I am, for God's sakes. They wear a suit to work. They pay their taxes. They do their job. They have their own apartment. They are skilled laborers, to use the the blunt term. And they're still seen as people who have to watch their step that it's not good enough, that the fact that they are doing everything that is requested of them and required of them is still not good enough, that despite the fact that they are keeping their heads down and that they're trying not to, to, to push the bubble or rock the boat or whatever analogy you want to use, that they still could get stopped by a couple of cops Puh. and, in so doing, nearly get run in for the crime of nothing. And then we have Jimmy. Jimmy's the hoodlum. And he is absolutely contributing to the problem. Oh, again, don't mistake me. This is not a statement of blame. But Jimmy has decided, well, see, see, he is low skilled labor. And there's no nice way to say that sentence. Right? There's no, there's no nice way to say that. If you are a, there's, uh, God, I forget the actual economic terms. Forgive me. In economic terms, there's generally considered two or three, depending how you define it, uh, classifications. There's a difference between a dock worker and a surgeon, right? Now, you might be saying, duh, but my point being, even from a base economic perspective, those are considered completely different categories of jobs. Now, the important part, if I might interject here for a moment, is that some people think that makes the dock worker less important, and those people are stupid, to be blunt, without that dock worker, there's a pretty good chance that surgeon wouldn't be able to do their job properly because of the nature of shipping and interaction and international trade. And blah blah blah. In short, the actual economic principle here is that both halves are necessary for a functioning society. I could get off into a whole thing about the economic principles of this and why I personally think that there shouldn't be such a gulf in terms of income when it comes to low skill workers. Uh, excuse me, low skilled laborers or high skilled laborers. But regardless of that, getting back to my point, what we see here are two high-skilled, that would be Benny and Willie, a writer and a baseball player, a good baseball player by all accounts, and Jimmy, who is a low skilled he, he can wash dishes. He can, he can act as a janitor or whatever. And his response to that is, piss on that. I'm going to just steal for a living. And you can see how that then contributes to the problem just like they do, although arguably more so because... Well, because we have a bit of crab mentality going on here, don't we? In fact, well, I don't want to speak a negative about Cassie's character. I don't even remember her name. Please forgive me. But what's interesting about her is she is supportive, but also in her pragmatism is effectively trying to drag Benny down, just like Jimmy is. Although, if I can diverge for just a second... There's this great bit that just occurred to me. I was watching The Dishes uh in the middle. I, I needed to take a break. The episode was hitting me too hard. I needed to take a break, so I went to do some dishes uh, from breakfast. And, and as I was doing it, it, it occurred to me something, which I want to share with you. See, Benny's an idealist. But if Proxus had not exploded, his idealism possibly would have never found expression. Now, I'm not just quoting Star Trek VI here. Because the idea that occurred to me is praxis, excuse me, not praxis, the idea that occurred to me is idealism is a necessary component of society and progression, in my opinion, but it generally doesn't do anything by itself. If you have idealism, if you have ideals and future and concepts and all that stuff, it doesn't mean anything unless something helps to push it, like praxis exploding That's actually the posit of exactly what happens in the Star Trek universe. We have the Eugenics War, World War III, and then the Vulcans show up. Three major external events push them so that the idealists can find expression. What also, however, now this is the interesting one, what can also help that is a nice dose of practicality and pragmatism to then apply functional ideology, which is where Cassie comes in. She talks about buying the diner. And it's worth noting that if they bought into that diner, and he helped work at the diner, cooking and doing dishes and and mopping and serving people, his wages would go up, not down, from being a high-skilled writer at at a relatively popular science fiction publication. Think about that for a second. But you'll notice, while she does bring him down, she also manages to support him at the same time. Hence the pragmatism. Hence the practicality. Someone like Benny needs someone like Cassie. Which I suppose brings me to... Well, there's this denouement in the episode. Um, Actually, before I move forward... You ever have... (laughs) Actually... I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here, I forgot to mention. I forgot to mention something. Uh, Cassie's character, I should just look up her name. Uh, Who does she play? Ah, one moment please. Oh, I have the wrong episode up. Well, whatever, I can't look it up. Cassie's character, she says, I don't care about, who cares about a hundred years from now? Today is what matters. Maybe Jimmy says that. No, I think she's the one who says that. Who cares? Today is what matters. I just wanted to bring that up in direct relation to the pragmatism married to ideology concept, the idea that you need both, because the harsh reality is you need to think about 100 years from now, and you need to think about today. And those two things are in conflict, and solving that, and and managing that, well, that's being a leader. (laughs) You ever have a moment, I've talked about this many times, you ever have a moment where things are bad, but then... Things are better. Things have gotten better. And there's just this relief. And it's almost, like, euphoric. Because it's like, oh, thank God, that huge weight is gone. Thank God, things have gotten better. Nope! And then things are worse. You ever have that? Because I have. I've said before that that's one of the worst feelings in the entire world. Thinking things got better, only for them to actually get worse. You think that relief, you think that almost euphoria is is an extreme reaction to the change stimuli? No, no, no. When you find out things are bad, that is so much more crushing than if things had just gone from bad to worse. It would be easier to take bad to worse. But bad to good to worse? That's horrible. And that's exactly what Benny goes through. He's so overjoyed. I did some calculations. He mentions he's getting three cents a word. Now, obviously he's writing basically a script for Deep Space Nine, so it's a short story effectively, right? Little thing. So I don't know how much he wrote. But just for the hell of it, I decided to look up one of my own books. And in that book, I, you know, I calculated it out. And in 1953, for three cents a word, I would have been paid $3,275.64. Now, Again, we could probably easily chop that in thirds, but even if we do, that's like a thousand bucks. That's a lot of money. And just for the hell of it, I already did the calculation for inflation, which would be 31 is that a one? I'm going to say it's a one. 31,475 and 34 cents in today money. Imagine you just got paid 30 grand, or maybe 10 grand for writing a story. Nice, huh? So you could see why he's so happy and exuberant. Oh, not just because he made the money, because, but because making the money marries the pragmatism to his idealism. He did it. He wrote the words, he got the message out, and he's getting paid for it. So now he has practicality as well as ideology. And then, of course, he meets... <laughs> I love Brock Peters in this episode. I really do. Um, he meets Brock Peters and Brock Peters is like, no, you don't understand. It, it goes good and it goes bad. I'd say, by the way, Brock Peters is one of the biggest reasons why I don't think it's the dream, which I, I'm going to save those thoughts, uh, for last. I was going to do them first and then I forgot because I'm a moron. So we'll save those thoughts for last, but I do want to, I do want to talk about that. Um, so, so then Jimmy gets shot. Before I talk about Jimmy, actually, I want to talk about defiance because that is ultimately like I know this is this feels out of order, but I swear I'm doing this for a reason in the scenes after that you know he gets the tar beaten out of him by the cops for no real reason, although again that probably would happen today too, but let's not get into that so he gets the tar beaten out of him. <clears throat> And he goes back to the publishing house. And the people there, they've always been supportive of him. They're happy to see him. Asimov got his book published. That's awesome. And uh, Rene Abergenois' character, Joseph Campbell, comes in. And he's like, well, it was pulped. It was it was thrown out. They've decided not to do a publication this this month. Because... <laughs> because the publisher, Mr. Stone, who was this nameless, faceless person in the distance, said, no, I, I can't do this. I mean, this is just intolerable. So this is why I bring up the word defiance, because Benny loses it. It's at the 36-minute mark. I wrote it down, although I remembered it without even checking it. He breaks down, and he just completely starts self-destructing emotionally and mentally I've actually heard some people over the years say that they don't like Avery Brooks performance his his acting style and in fact one of the most common elements that they point to is this type of acting he has I don't know he has this way of speaking I don't actually know how to explain you know what I'm talking about you've seen this show if you're watching me here and I, I get that preference is a preference thing but for me I don't think anything we're seeing here is overacting or bad acting this is someone who is just pouring everything out through every pore, basically. You can see the emotion seeping out of him as he's shaking, barely capable of maintaining a single word. And by several accounts of the other actors on the set, Avery Brooks just threw himself into this full tilt, you know, without holding anything back. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he just breaks down. But... The really interesting thing is his attitude the entire time is not one of restraint. This is the parallel to restraint, defiance. And I say specifically defiance, not just because he named a shift that ship that, but his shift. We're on the defiance shift. <laughs> but because of the fact that defiance is not things are gonna get better. Now that's important. Defiance is screw you. Defiance is, this is bad, you're hurting me, screw you, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. I'm not going to win, but I am not going to go down quietly. That is defiance. And that is an emotion I understand very well. And to see him just practically scream that, and his, as he's like, no, I'm screwed to hell with you, and to hell with Stone, and to hell with your publication, I am not, you can't do this, you can't destroy my idea, you can kill me, but you cannot kill the ideas I have presented. Now you might wonder, why am I talking about this before I talk about the corrupt cops killing Jimmy and beating up Cisco? One of the things that's interesting about this episode is there's no real allegory uh, um let that let that be your last battlefield original series for those of you who don't remember uh what is it like it's like black and white and then white and black right like you remember that it was an extremely overt extremely on the nose uh, allegory for racism now. <laughs> I've made the comment in the past that, God, I think that was a little bit too obvious. Obviously, I'm wrong, since that's still a problem today. I mean, it, the point of the allegory there is it makes it so obvious and so ridiculous, you can't help but look at it and think, yeah, that's silly. Why would anyone do that? But Star Trek, in this episode, has no allegory, right? This is simply how it actually was. Back in 1953, in whatever city this is set in, I forget. Forgive me. <clears throat> New York? I don't know. Now, that's part of the power of the episode. There's no flinching, there's no holding back, there's no restraining, there's no behind closed doors, there's no implication. It's just this was horrible. The end. Like that's the period at the end of the sentence, right there. <laughs> now, I'm going to completely contradict myself and say that I I don't think this was deliberate at all, and I don't. I've se- I've seen lots of behind the scenes information on this. Uh, almost every cast member has has had at least one interview about this episode. It was specifically mentioned in the documentary. You know, it was talked about at at conventions. This is a very very well trod episode from a behind-the-scenes perspective. And no one's ever mentioned anything like what I'm about to mention. But by my analysis, this is an allegory. Hear me out. The allegory is in reverse. The situation of the 1950s is an allegory for the situation in the modern 2400s, or 2500s, or whatever they're at, at this point. There's a bit... Which I've already referenced multiple times where the two corrupt scumbags are beating the crap out of Benny for basically no real reason. Because he's there. After they just shot Jimmy. Which is also something that they did for no real reason. Oh yeah, he had a weapon. He had a crowbar. Yeah, yeah, no. So... They're beating the crap out of them. And people are just kind of watching. And every now and again they shift back to being Dukat and Weyung. And you probably now see where I'm going with this. The really insidious nature of the Dominion is that you can do everything right. And do everything that's asked of you. And wear a suit. And go to a high-paying job. And still be called to task. Or killed. Or worse for no fault of your own, because you have committed no crime, for only the case of how you were born. A solid. In this, it really helps to demonstrate the horrible nature of the Dominion and why they are a truly, legitimately evil institution. This makes my point about Ducat being the real bad guy even more strong, because this, in its very powerful and potent way, in my opinion, shows the Dominion to truly be the anti-Federation. Oh, the Federation has issues. Of course it does. But what they have is nothing compared to the systemic evil that the Dominion is. We want to talk about racism. Look at the Founders. Look at how they view everyone who is not them. Look at their mentality. Racism, I looked this up. I don't think I have the link up anymore. I do not. But I I looked up the definition of racism for this, just for the hell of it, just to make sure I wasn't misusing the word. And built into the definition is not just looking down on another. It is an inherent belief in one's own superiority to the one you're looking down at. And that sounds a hell of a lot like the founders to me. They literally call themselves gods. And even ignoring their self-deification, there's also the fact that they look at everything else as inconsequential when compared to the life of a single founder. I have zero doubt that if the founders could, one moment, wipe out all life in the galaxy except for the founders, they would do it without hesitation. So we see these flashes of Ducat and Weyoun. And all I can think is, God dang. Because that's what they're facing. We all have our oppressors, right? <laughs> we all have our oppression in lives, all of us, to some extent or another. And this brings me to uh, what I believe is my final point. Just looking at my notes really quick. Yep, my final point before then I'm going to talk about something a lot less serious to kind of calm down the video. Can you imagine what it would feel like to not be oppressed? To some extent or another. Is that something that's within the ability of your imagination? It's not in mine. I, I don't know what that feels like. I. It's It's a good ideal, right? It's a good thing to hope for. But hope is uh, meaningless. Hope is a poison. It is hope fulfilled. That is when things get awesome. And that, I think, is the final interesting message of the episode. Um, I jotted this down. Uh, Joseph Sisko, Brock Peters is awesome, straight up quotes the Bible at Sisko. God, they're just, they're not holding anything back this episode, are they? Can you imagine quoting the Bible straight-faced in Star Trek? (laughs) I think this might actually be the only time that's ever done. And I quote, For I am already being poured out to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall repay me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that have loved his appearing. Now the point of that, I don't want to get into theology right now, but the point of that and its execution in the episode is, well, defiance, sure, but hope fulfilled. Because both of those are then married in this episode. Because we see that it got better. That it, within the universe of Star Trek, when we go from 1953 to the modern era, yeah, we still have our oppressors, With the Dominion still exists. But look at Earth. Look at how much it's changed. Look how much it's grown. They have for all that people make fun of the ideology and the the high-minded, oh yes, paradise ideals of Star Trek, can I just say that that is a wonderful future to look forward to? If that was the future that was waiting for us, that would be a relief to me. I'd take that ten times out of ten, especially after what we're probably going towards in real life. (laughs) That is hope fulfilled. Benny fought the good fight, so to speak. And his reward was effectively nothing other than the knowledge that he fought the good fight, that he did not give up, that he did not surrender. And then things got better. Not for him, but for everyone. It took a while. took a hundred years. But it got there. And that then finally blows the message down to... The moment we're at in star trek with the dominion war because remember there's no hope against the dominion there's no winning cisco and the federation are very likely to go down just like benny went down just like jimmy went down just another mark on history of the dominion stomping over everyone in their path but the message is there that eventually hope will be fulfilled This this would be a great time to chop off the rumination, but unfortunately, I really do have more to talk about, because I'm an idiot and I forgot to talk about it earlier. (laughs) Let's talk about the dreaming. Now, uh, if you'd asked me to ruminate on this back in, say, early 2018, or any time prior to that, I would comment on how much I dislike part of this episode. I know that sounds weird, because in I just spent however long gushing about this incredible episode. But the thing that bothers me <clears throat> is when fiction does what I call the opposite of concrete reality. Now, not that there's nothing, anything inherently or necessarily wrong with a tale or a mythos or something that does not have a concrete bedrock to it, but that's not my thing, and it never has been. Um, mind game stuff. Was it? Will it? Maybe? Kind of? Sort of? Were they dreaming, really? Is that really what happened? You probably can think of several examples of that. This very episode is actually an example of that, and it was done deliberately, as we know now. See, the idea that the episode posits, and this is when interpretation kind of comes into the fray, is is Cisco and by consequence all of Deep Space Nine, just a dream of Benny? Or is Benny just a dream of Cisco, And it, it, it leaves it up for debate, because right at the end he looks in the mirror, and even though the mental stuff is gone, even though the explanation of the Prophet Visions are gone, he sees Benny in the mirror. Yeah, it's very Twilight zone in a bad way, if I could be so blunt. Because I hate that stuff. No. Uh, to use an opposite example, Frame of Mind, over in TNG, I think that's season seven, it's season six or season seven, pretty late. Um, well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be covering it this year, actually. In Frame of Mind, they go back and forth between the what is reality, what is not, what's happening, oh God, what's going on. But it works because there is an underlying bedrock beneath all of that. Beneath all of the what, sh- what is is and what isn't is and inconsistencies, there is a layer of consistency that helps ground the rest of the episode. So in short, you have basically what is a bubble of uncertainty on top of a layer of certainty, to use a simple parallel, or, or an, an, an analogy, excuse me. So I'm okay with that. What irritates me is when they pull the thing like the end of this episode. Now, in, in the advantage of hindsight, this makes sense. Oh, I, do I have the quote? I don't have the quote, do I? Ah, uh, hang on, Maybe I still have it written down? No! Ah, shoot, I don't have it written down. Give me one second, I am so stupid. There it is. Just needed to find this. So back in... When was this? This is pretty recent. Yep, August. August of 2018. uh, There's the 25th anniversary of DSpace9. And they were talking about several things. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And there's this bit where Iris Stephen Bear says, I'm just going to quote him word for word here, I did pitch to Rick Berman that the final episode would end up with Benny Russell on stage 17 at Paramount, wandering around the sound stages, realizing that this whole construct, this whole series, we'd done for seven years was just in Benny's head. That's how I wanted to end the series. And Rick said, does this mean the original series was in Benny's head? Does this mean Voyager was in Benny's head? And I said, hey man, I don't care who's dreaming those shows, I only care about Deep Space Nine. And yeah, Benny Russell's dreaming Deep Space Nine. He didn't go for it. Now, Forgive me for saying what is probably going to sound blasphemous, but uh this might be the only time uh, ever <laughs> that I really agree with Rick Berman. I would have hated that. Oh my God, do you know what a can of worms that would have been? Do you know how much that would have thrown everything in? It would have been Mass Effect 3's ending, except even worse somehow. <laughs> Imagine if Mass Effect 3's ending also affected Dragon Age, and like something else. I don't know, KOTOR, right? Just, what? No! Now, I'm actually curious of your guys' thoughts on the idea of that original ending. But I bring that up because this episode was supposed to be laying the, the, the groundwork for that eventual ending, hence the Maybe it wasn't a dream thing at the end, because they wanted that thread. Now, we now know that that was torpedoed, and thus, it really was just a dream of Cisco. It was, a, it was a vision of the Prophets. This is even further solidified at the end of Season 6, the beginning of Season 7, when Cisco actually re- receives another dream, uh, that is to say vision, to be more clear, uh, but this time from the Pa race, rather than the, the Prophets. So we see that they've taken in a new angle there. But, I mean, think about that for a moment. Could you imagine the uproar? <laughs> yeah, all of Star Trek's a dream of some guy named Benny Russell. What? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's many reasons why people tend to dislike the it's just a dream answer anyways. But for them to actually try and posit this idea, well, I've said many times that the more I learn about Ira Steven Bear, the less I agree with him. This is probably one of the biggest examples of that. Because this, in my mind, would be a huge mistake. First of all, I don't see the point of it. Like, what does this do? What? Why are you doing this ending? Are you just doing it because? Are you doing it for the shock value? Are you doing it for the, ha ha, gotcha? I don't see any deliberate, significant, thematic point to actually doing with that kind of ending. Problem one, number one. Problem number two is the obvious. You're spitting on the fan base. Like it or not, you are spitting on the fan base. if in no part, small part, because of problem number three. The fact that you don't care about the franchise that you are making a show in. You only care about your show. Now, you might say, well, isn't that his job? Well, no. His job is to manage Deep Space Nine as a part of Star Trek. It's not called Deep Space Nine. It's called Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So, it is his job to maintain a sense of continuity with the rest of the franchise. I know it's Star Trek, and they fail at that all the time, but there is at least a degree of continuity there. Right? So, you can't just suddenly say that this one entire show never happened, especially given D-Space Nine has already crossed over to both TNG and Voyager. So, at the very least, there are connecting points there to two other major shows. Three other major shows. Sorry, I forgot about Trials and Tribulations. So, all of the other Star Trek shows have been touched directly and deliberately by Space 9 You can't just chop that off like that. Now, if they had gone through with that, and this is the last thing I want to talk about, if they had gone through with that, I'd just headcanon it out of existence, if I'm being completely honest. What? <laughs> I. I mean... We're kind of, as Star Trek fans, aren't we kind of used to headcanoning stuff out of existence anyways? I mean, how many of you really consider These Are the Voyages to be the series finale of Enterprise? Or how many of you just kind of eject it? Not just because it's bad, which is an unrelated problem, but because of the fact that it has nothing to do with Enterprise. It is, in fact, not an episode of Enterprise. It's an episode of TNG set on a holodeck in TNG which happens to also include Enterprise characters. This is also ignoring the fact, and I'll talk about this when we get there, that as you go through the episode, there are several demonstrable points in which the program is being altered and no longer historically accurate. So we can't even say we're seeing an accurate historical representation of Enterprise because it's a holodeck program that's adapting on the fly to the inference of an external character who's doing things that didn't happen historically. So it's not even a good record of what happened back in Enterprise. So no, it's not the serious finale. Eject. And thus, it would be relatively easy to do the same thing with D Space Nine if they had gone this route, right? Hey, all of D Space Nine is a dream. No, it wasn't. You can just eject that. Uh, as ever, I am both dreading and looking forward to your guys' comments on this week's episode. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, I wanted to talk about the, the, the other ending and the dream thing here, because ultimately it will never actually come up again. The Paul Wraith thing is effectively an unrelated point, and that's the last time it'll actually be mentioned. So, how'd I do, guys? <laughs> I was, I, I'm not sure I've ever had an episode I, have mo- I was more afraid of talking about than this one, because of the society we live in, because of the very concepts uh, that are being presented therein. You know, this isn't, this isn't Code of Honor, which is an episode which had issues due to a director who was fired over those issues, right? No. No, this is a look at real-life history, and that's, well, as a student of history, that's not a pleasant thing. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time.